0: The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, October 17th, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Donald Trump and his supporters are claiming that the media is ignoring revelations in WikiLeaks and instead focusing on the scurrilous but unsubstantiated revelations against him by a handful. Okay, two handfuls, two handfuls of women also the candidate's own words. On Meet the Press, Chuck Todd, in a bit of linguistic pedagogy, schooled Mike Pence, who asserted that the allegations weren't substantiated. Ah, yes, they were. The women attesting to the groping are substantiation, i.e. they're giving the allegations substance, substantiation, supported. They might not have been proved, but they've been substantiated. But my ear was drawn to the other vice presidential candidate, Tim Kaine, on Face the Nation. Now, before I play this clip, let's remember how Donald Trump spoke of the hack that revealed the leak that Wiki is leaking. It might not be the Russians, he said. It might not even be a hack. Well, it might be a hack, but the hack could be... China. It could also be lots of other people. It also could be somebody sitting on their bed that weighs 400 pounds, okay? Now, by pure sentence construction, I would say it's not unusual for a bed to weigh 400 pounds. But the campaign that can't define substantiated might also have trouble noting that the pronoun describing a person is a who, not a that. So in that sentence should be the person who weighs 400 pounds. But we all get what Trump was saying. Maybe it was hacked by a fat guy. Fat guy's hack. But Tim Kaine, in discussing this ridiculous assertion, had to phrase it a different way. He is the only one standing on the stage to defend Russia. Well, we don't know that Russia was involved. It might be a a big guy sitting in his parents' basement. Now, Tim Kaine was an annoying puppy in the vice presidential debate. But come on, he is just such a nice guy. He couldn't even bring himself to use Trump's words. Because Trump's words are pointed and unsparing. To Trump supporters, Trump tells it like it is. But I think this was the epitome of the Trump tells it like it is explanation. He doesn't tell it like it is. What he does do is he tells it vividly. He uses vivid and often barbed language, not accurate language, because that hack wasn't done by a 400 pound hacker, unless the Russian behind it happens to weigh 400 pounds and was sitting on a bed at the time. That hack was done by the Russians. But man, does he bring images to life? Tim Kaine can't do that. Tim Kaine is more like a usual politician and a normal human being. Tim Kaine has to nice it up. You know how Luther was Obama's anger translator on Key and Peele? Maybe Tim Kaine can be Trump's niceness translator. All the nasty things that Trump has said. He can make them a little nicer. He called me Miss Piggy. Uh, he likened her to an adorable Muppet who once won an award for feminism. Jeb Bush, low energy. He said the former governor was a calm and possibly reassuring presence. Tranquilo y tranquilizador. Little Marco wanted a full-length mirror to make sure his pants weren't wet. He noted that Mr. Rubio took pride in grooming and his personal appearance. Okay, Tim, Um, here's a tape of what Donald said on a bus, and uh, we can't really play this out loud in a workplace, but why don't you put the headphones on and listen? Oh, oh my. Well, I could do this. Mr. Trump obviously believes in the care and transport of felines, perhaps to a veterinarian after ingesting foliage. I can't. I just can't do it anymore. On the show today, I spiel about Trump's accusers. They have all been debunked. Did you know that? All of them. So in other words, I delve into right-wing media so you won't have to. But first, that thing I said about who and that, we have an entire interview on that. Who? Trump. What? A rhetoric expert. Here we go. Donald Trump uses all the words, the best words, and to great effect, this has been determined by a totally... Scientifically assembled focus group of the people who go nuts at his rallies. Actually, some of the words, should you parse them, have subtleties that I wonder if the Donald even realized. Jennifer Mercia is an associate professor of communication and the director of the Aggie Agora at Texas A&M University. Hello, Jennifer. How are you?
1: Hello, I'm well, thank you. How are you?
0: Good. I enjoy the Aggie Agora, which is, of course, the old Athenian idea of a marketplace where ideas can be exchanged. So let us exchange some ideas in the way Donald Trump exchanges them. He does this thing where he does this, well, I'm not saying I'm just saying type device, which allows him, I guess, to make assertions, but have plausible or implausible deniability that he's making those assertions. (laughs)
1: That's right, he sure does. And and you're right, he does have the best words, the greatest. They're really tremendous. Um, particularly, um, I find it amusing, interesting, and frightening that he uses paralipses as often as he does. Yes,
0: tell me about paralipses.
1: So, paralipses is the, I'm not saying, I'm just saying, uh, rhetorical figure. And uh, it's used to distance yourself from claims. To It's an ironic form of saying two things at once, mm-hmm. right? So I don't want to be held accountable for saying this, but I'm certainly going to say this thing that I you know, really want to say. Um, and he does it
0: all the time. So some examples of this would be what?
1: Uh, so one of my favorite examples is one where he said, and, and I love this example particularly because he's actually telling you that he's doing it. Um, this is from a rally in December, of last year in New Hampshire he says but all of the other candidates are just weak and they're just weak and i think that they're weak generally if you want to know the truth but i don't want to say that because i don't want to i don't want to have any controversies no controversies is that okay so i refuse to say that they are weak generally okay
0: <laughs> right right. or he says I remember the time when a woman yelled out something pretty vile and then he says I'm not going to say this I'm not going to say this and then he says it and then he essentially said but I didn't say that
1: but I didn't say that and
0: he also didn't say those words on the tape well that's a little bit of a different thing <laughs> also the incident with the baby wasn't there a lot of paralipses going on there <laughs> with I love babies I don't like babies I'm kidding no I love them actually I was only kidding you can get the baby out of here
1: That's all right. Don't worry. I, I think she really believed me that I love having a baby crying while I'm speaking.
0: That's okay. Is that paralipses or just contradiction?
1: <laughs> um, it could have been paralipses. I would have to look at the, the thing again. But, yeah, I like. It. it shows the irony there, right, and the confusion. Is it okay if my baby's crying? Do I have to take my baby out? No, no, really take your baby out. <laughs> I don't really want your baby here.
0: So I think what it's communicating is that he although he goes beyond the norms of discourse it is to me a reflection that he knows the norms Mm -hmm. he doesn't he never says things and then is like what 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 I say (laughs) you know he always knows what he's doing and it also indicates that he's not just someone without a filter per se he's someone who consciously transcends what little it might be a tissue thin filter but he understands where the line is and he consciously goes over the lines that's what the use of paralipses says to me yeah
1: I think that's right and that's why I love that example that I gave you from December um, because he's actually telling you his thought process as he's doing it. Um, You know, and so you see the internal struggle with him where he wants to say it, but then he knows he shouldn't. Um, And it's fascinating, particularly because he says he's, you know, not going to be shackled or whatever his term was uh, by political correctness or by the party or whatever. So he knows that he shouldn't say certain things, but he can't help himself. He really wants to. And so for him, Paralypses is a great way of saying what he really wants to say without being held accountable for it.
0: And does that also maybe work with his audience where they can tell themselves a story whereby they're not buying into a hundred percent of what he's saying or that they themselves have plausible deniability, but they get the emotional satisfaction of, you know, hearing the unvarnished words, but the intellectual bailing out of saying, well, he didn't really say that.
1: Yeah, I think it does two things for his audience. One, is what you've said, which is that they get to feel like they have a connection to the behind the scenes, to the real Donald Trump, Mm. um, that they really get a sense of what he is and what he wants and what he thinks. So in that sense, it's a like insider kind of nod to, you know, you and I know what we're talking about. And then the other thing is that it allows them to feel superior, right? Like I know what he's saying, and so I really know him, and uh, and I get it. And so it's the language of insiders that he's relying upon. And irony is always a language of insiders. You you have to understand a culture um, to get an ironic twist.
0: Well, what makes it irony? What makes it fit the definition of irony? Oh,
1: saying two things at once. So the definition of irony is negating the literal with the figural. Yeah. (laughs) So he um, is saying two things at the same time, which is ironic. Um, I'm saying that I'm not saying this while I'm saying it. Um, The paralipses. I mean, I see it as ironic and I see it as making the audience feel happy and comfortable and, and knowledgeable, but it's also funny, you know, I mean, it's what stand-up comedians do. And so, you know, even if you're not enjoying the irony, you know, you don't like what he's saying, you can still kind of laugh at the fact that he does it, you know, because it's, it's just so transparent. He is using what I take to be diabolically brilliant rhetorical strategy to prevent himself from being held accountable for most of the things that he says. I've tracked him since December and I'm writing a book on it. And so I see him using the paralipses and the argument ad baculum, the threats of force. I see him using appeals to the crowd, the wisdom of the crowd ad populum. I see him using uh, reification, which is something that I just wrote about in relation to the tape. So that's the thingifying of people. So treating people as objects instead of as people. Uh, he does that all the time. It frustrates me because <laughs> as a grammarian, when he says people that <laughs> instead of people who, I just want to like get out my red pen and <laughs> cross everything
0: out. You know, on uh, the gist, I did a roundup of debate number one or two of the Republicans, and all I did was count which candidates say people <laughs> that instead of people who. It's really who. telling. Well, I think it's also generational. It's just proper grammar. Marco Rubio he almost always says people that, and I believe... Jeb Bush says people who almost all the time.
1: Well, I would think that Trump would have been, you know, because he has the greatest education, the greatest mind, that he would have been in the the group of people who knew that it was supposed to be who. But he, he also calls people it you know.
0: Um,
1: And and so it's not just at the level of the sentence, but it is. um, But it's also at the level of thought, you know. So, you know, when he's demeaning Muslims or immigrants in general or women or handicapped people or anybody who he disagrees with or thinks that um, they're less than he is, he always refers to them as objects rather than as people, which allows him to reject their criticism. He doesn't need to, for example, answer to the Khan family, you know, they're objects, not mm-hmm. people, certainly not patriots like they claim to be. And um, it allows him to treat women the way he does. And...
0: But there are times when he definitely talks about people as people. The coal miners are people. You know, uh, police are people. So certain people get to be people, and certain people get to be pieces of ass.
1: So somebody asked me about um, what he was doing with Paul Ryan yesterday, and when I looked at his Twitter, he seemed to be treating him as a person. And so I think there's a power differential, and if he recognizes you as someone who's on his team, someone who he respects or wants to have the respect of, then he treats you as a person. Uh, Otherwise, you're an object.
0: There's also a showmanship aspect to it, which is the building up of tension. I think of James Brown going down on one knee and then draping him with uh, his cloak. I can't go on. I can't go on. Or even, you know, Red Fox. I'm coming, Elizabeth. Or Springsteen does this in his shows where Max will start playing the drums and he'll like pretend he's revving up the motor. And this is sort of like... Uh, Trump saying, I shouldn't say it. I shouldn't say it. And the crowd builds to a froth. And then the release of tension is he says it. And it's so much more effective than just, you know, saying an insult.
1: I love that. Absolutely. That's exactly what it is. Um, Right. He's he's proving his personal greatness and his own heroism by saying the thing that political correctness says that he ought not to say. Um, Yeah, absolutely.
0: Jennifer Mercia is an associate professor of communication and director of the Aggie Agora, which is a Texas A&M university. Uh, That's the Aggie part of it. And it turns out that she's writing a book on the linguistic stylings of Donald Trump. Good luck with that, Jennifer.
1: Thank you so much. My pleasure.
0: The Gist is doing two live shows this fall. Hey, it is fall, so they're coming soon. At the end of October, we'll be in Anaheim for the Now Hear This podcasting festival. We'll be there alongside great shows like Comedy Bang Bang, The Memory Palace, and What the Fuck with Mark Marin, and two of your other favorite slate shows, Dear Prudence and Trump Cast. We're going to be on stage with special guests Saturday, October 29th. That's Saturday, 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 October 29th for more information and to buy a pass, head over to fest.com Remember you say all one word, <laughs> right? fest.com and you can use the offer code GIST when you buy tickets to save 25% off general admission and let them know I sent you. That's fest all one word, .com, offer code GIST. And for East Coast fans, or maybe Midwesterners who happen to be in the East on Election Day, we will be doing a special viewing party on election night. It's more than a party. It's possibly a talking people off the ledge, but possibly a celebration. You know, depending on your political proclivities. Jacob Weisberg of Trumpcast will be there. We're going to announce special guests, so it'll be uh, better than just watching a cable network because we'll have our own experts to give analysis and perhaps even mental health professionals on call. November 8th, that is election night at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Tickets are on sale now. Go to slate.com slash live. The tickets are going fast, so get yours today. And now the spiel. The number of accusers who have lined up against Donald Trump for sexual transgressions now number in the low double digits, which is impressive when you take into account hand size. It should be noted that Trump and his backers are giving a certain high single digit to these women who've come forward. Trump, with his usual panache, says this of People magazine reporter Natasha Stoynoff. A new claim that I made inappropriate advances... During the interview to this writer, take a look. You take a look. Look at her. Look at her words. You tell me what you think. I don't think so. I don't think so. But online, Trump's minions, surrogates, true defenders, and various acolytes paint a different picture. It wasn't just that Stoyanov lacked the pulchritude to be harassed by Trump. It is that she has a rape fixation. Here is the proof. Charles Johnson of Got News linked to some of her social media feeds in which she posted pictures of her next to Mike Tyson and holding up a letter from a movie star who was complimenting her on her writing. Remember, she was a People magazine writer and Charles Johnson asserted that the movie star is a rumored rapist. He noted that, in fact, Mike Tyson is a convicted rapist. He added these two together, and he said that Stoinoff has a rape fixation, and therefore she, like every other Trump accuser, debunked. These assertions, these ideas of why Stoinoff has no standing have spread on right-wing Twitter, have been repeated by talk show hosts and bloggers with thousands, hundreds of thousands of followers, Johnson himself can't tweet. He was tossed off Twitter. But his news site and other sites are each providing a narrative to debunk, debunk each accuser. For instance, let's take Jessica Leeds. She is the 74-year-old woman who says Trump groped her on a cross-continental flight. In a videotaped interview with the New York Times, Leeds used this phrase. He was like an octopus. It was like he had six arms. He was all over the place. Now, the actual arm count of an octopus aside, someone in a chat room somewhere heard that and noted that those are a lot like the lyrics to a Velvet Underground song.
1: My God, he is like an octopus. Hands all over the place. She gestured, raising her arms up while in defense.
0: Now, this analogy of a handsy man to an octopus, is to me an analogy that seems fairly well entrenched in the culture, but a certain Reddit user, who, doesn't matter, name anonymous, disagreed. He says, as far as I could tell, he was like an octopus, hands all over the place, or hands everywhere, is not that common of a saying, but I could always be wrong. Actually, I can't find any references to it outside of these three cases. The third case was a trial that happened in England two years ago. Octopi do not have hands, so the saying does not make much sense. This struck a guy named Mike Cernovich as spot on. Mike Cernovich, author of Guerrilla Mindset, lawyer, free speech activist, he has 135,000 Twitter followers, and he retweeted this idea. And other right-wing sites picked it up, like one called The Political Insider who writes of Leeds' accusation, it appears the story is entirely false and the New York Times was officially punked. Why? Because the story appears to be borrowed from a Velvet Underground song. The lyrics are nearly word for word what her story is. This is shocking. That is not a parody article, a parody site, or a parody argument. This is evidence that Jessica Leeds is debunked. Now, at this point, you may be saying, this is a collection of the stupidest things I have ever heard. And I agree. These debunkings are so apparently contentless that they're really easily disproven. And yet they still fuel true believers. They show up in lists of how all the accusers are debunked. I think we imagine that conspiracy theories rely on elaborate explanations that often veer into the realm of the unprovable or that they they trade in assertions beyond the wisdom of the layman, assertions about what temperature it takes to melt the steel in the World Trade Center, or they rest on conflation of actual facts like membership in the Masons, two fantastic conspiracies. Well, not these, not the ones debunking the Trump accusers. They're just the most threadbare I don't even want to call them ideas, words on a website that get passed around and treated as truth. Here's one about Mindy McGillivray, who says uh, Trump grabbed her in 2003. It was at a Ray Charles concert at Mar-a-Lago. Charles Johnson and other sites point out the fact that Ray Charles never played Mar-a-Lago in January of 2003. Ray Charles canceled his tours at that time. Of course, there is a picture on Getty Images of Trump and Ray Charles at Mar-a-Lago. The date is January 1st, 2003. But Johnson and others say this only confirms what they've been saying because that picture was dated January 1st. And the concert is said to have taken place on January 24th. Well, there are a lot of reasons why the picture could be called January 1st. It seems to at least place Ray Charles at Mar-a-Lago sometime in January of 2003 and also rebut the idea that Ray Charles canceled all his tours. So what I did was I contacted Joe Capozzi, who first reported this particular accusation against Trump in the Palm Beach Post. I said, can you verify the date of the concert? Here's what he told me that the photographer who took the pictures, who had the contract to take pictures at Mar-a-Lago, looked at the back of the picture of Donald Trump and Ray Charles and read out the date, January 24th, 2003. He also said the photographer is hunting down the negatives to double confirm the date. Now, that reporter confirming dates from a firsthand source, that is called journalism. My calling, the actual reporter, who related to me his methods, that's at least akin to journalism. At least it's genuine curiosity in pursuit of what really happened. The debunkers do not care about any of this. It could be that one or all of the accusations against Trump fall apart. Could be, it doesn't seem likely to me, could happen. But what I do know is that if you compare the accusations to the debunkings, one is hard to prove, though not impossible to prove, and the other is just the saddest exercise in propaganda and for some slice of the electorate, twisted wish fulfillment. I know which side I'd rather be on. That's it for today's show. Chris Berube is the producer who cut that linguistic interview. Mary Wilson is the producer. That was named Time Magazine's Invention of the Year 2004. Steve Lichtai is the guy who is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of Panoply, is the fellow that declares paradoxes do not compute and then leak smoke from where the ears go. The gist, teaching you the difference between who and that, or if you're in New Orleans, who and dat. oom poo de pru and thanks for listening.